0: Hello and welcome to this edition of The Screen Podcast, which is the podcast for the global screen business publication, Screen International. I'm Matt Mueller, Screens Editor, and in this episode, I'm joined by three of my illustrious colleagues, Funula Halligan, Screens Reviews Editor and Chief Critic, Deputy Editor Louise Tutt, and Awards and Box Office Editor Charles Gant. We'll be discussing the shape of the award season at this stage, a shape that has crystallized with both the Oscar and BAFTA nominations revealed last month. And we'll also be giving you our own picks to win in a few of the key BAFTA categories. We'll save our Oscar picks until after the BAFTA ceremony has taken place on March 13th. But first, it just so happens that this podcast is landing on March 8th, which is, of course, International Women's Day, the global holiday for commemorating the achievements of women across all areas, including culture, and for focusing attention on key issues such as gender equality and reproductive rights. I was doing a little bit of research into its history and did you know that Soviet Russia was the first country to enshrine a Women's Day as a national holiday in 1917. Slightly ironic, given the heartbreaking events taking place in Ukraine right now, and the United Nations adopted it as a global holiday in 1977. So happy International Women's Day in advance, given we aren't actually recording on the date, but Finn, tell me what the significance of this day is for you, particularly in the context of the international screen industries.
1: Well, Matt, I love a holiday that isn't really a holiday, but it's a day of celebration nonetheless. You know, it just gives you an opportunity to focus, doesn't it? And a lot has been achieved, but there's a lot more to be achieved. And I think we have to keep the pressure up. There's great women around the world keeping the pressure up on some very reluctant systems to open up to equality, because equality is the word here. And I think it's important as well to kind of focus on, on this Women's Day that 50-50 is what we're aiming for and inclusivity within that 50-50. So, you know, you get to 50-50 and then you start to look at how you can be more inclusive, female, black and brown filmmakers, women filmmakers of differing abilities and those to be looked at as well within those figures. But it's been a terrific start to the year. You know, if you look at Sundance and the top deals out of Sundance were, we're really done on films directed by women. We're looking at Watcher, Master, good luck to you Leo Grande, Fresh, Alice nanny it has to be said though, so that a lot of these films were about the nightmare of being a woman and the nightmare about being a black woman and you know a woman of color so uh, that's that's interesting development and we'll expect these to come on during the year and then we moved on to berlin and the golden bear was won by carla simon with her film alcaras so keep the pressure up equality and we'll be looking at can venice every festival all the awards and we'll be keeping an eye on things going forward,
0: Matt, right? Absolutely. And of course, Carla Simon's win followed two previous A-list festivals last year, Cannes and Venice, which both also gave their top prizes to female filmmakers. At Cannes, it was Julia Ducker now for Titane, and at Venice it was audrey dewan for happening who won the golden lion and both of those filmmakers of course are nominated for this year's baftas both in the best director category oh before i forget finn of course you'll be talking to nina menquez later as well as part of our international women's day coverage and look forward to hearing your chat with her
1: Uh, Yes, that's Nina Menkes. She's a well-known independent feminist filmmaker of many years' standing and of many years' prestige. But also she has a lecture that she's been taking around the world tirelessly. And she's made that lecture now into a film which premiered at Sundance. And it was at Berlin as well. And it's going to be at Copenhagen Docks, which is coming up very shortly. And it's called Brainwashed. And it looks at how we literally see women on screen. I mean, when she boils it down and she picks it apart, It's an amazing film to sit through and realize that it's actually we're conditioned through through how we've been trained to view women. So stay tuned for that later on.
0: We'll look forward to that. Well, let's move now on to awards race. And Charles and Louise, I'll come to the two of you next. So we had the BAFTA nominations on the 3rd of February, followed by the Oscar nominations on the 8th. What did the two sets of nominations reveal to you in terms of which titles have the momentum at this stage, which ones might be fading a little bit, or is this race still completely wide open in both ceremonies?
2: Well, I think that it is actually quite wide open. I thought it was interesting that in our last print weekly where we talked to our anonymous panel of awards voters and I looked at what they were telling us. Now, I know this is a very sort of small sample, but I was really impressed and a little bit surprised just how diverse people's picks were. I kind of thought that we were really getting down to a battle between The Power of the Dog and Belfast in terms of the, the big wins in the big categories. But I'm no, having seen those votes, I know it's a very small sample, but I do feel I'm no longer quite so sure about that. What do you think, Louise?
3: That's interesting because I wonder if things are moving towards Belfast, I feel, in Best Film. I think that it has resonance in our times right now with the conflict in Ukraine, with the war in Ukraine, and a film about the impact of war on a young boy seems to just have that resonance. And I think, certainly with BAFTA voters, it's a British film with a British cast about a UK storyline. I don't see either Don't Look Up June or Licorice Pizza making it at the final hurdle and the power of the dog as we know people do love but I do pick up a reluctance to vote for a Netflix film that hasn't been released in cinemas to the degree that Belfast has which had a you know such a beautiful theatrical campaign
2: the thing about Netflix I mean I do feel that now the streamers are so strongly in the mix not just with Netflix but also Apple and Amazon for me, I'm. I mean, maybe I just speak to different people, but that isn't really a topic that's really come up. I do meet people who just are not, you know, loving the power of the dog. I meet plenty of those people, but what I'm finding is is a lack of consistency about the film that they do love, and particularly at the Oscars where you've got a list of ten. I agree with Louise But I mean, I think Louise is making a very interesting point about Belfast and how it might resonate with voters, and I. I have a slight concern with Belfast, but because it's also at the BAFTAs, it's up for Outstanding British Film. When people fill out their ballot, there is the danger that they feel, oh, I can vote for Belfast in Outstanding British Film. And then I can give my other vote elsewhere. And people who want to spread the love may do that.
0: Yeah, tactical voting, which is obviously a, is something that does happen. I mean, we, you know, we all speak to people who do tactically vote, and it's a very, you know, common, common thing amongst voters to sort of spread the love a little bit amongst the many films that they might like across an awards season.
2: And the Power the part of the dog uh, which I had assumed was ineligible for British film, apparently it was not submitted for British film, but may have been eligible based on the creative components of it with uh, two. UK based producers. So it's kind of interesting that if Netflix actually perhaps tactically chose not to put it in British film because they didn't want to kind of win the Constellation Prize.
3: I think outstanding British film is a really interesting category this year as always because there are as always again some very strong contenders that are independent British films that really have come from the independent UK film sector. I'm thinking specifically of Alim Khan's After Love and Clio Bernard's *Alien and Ava and I think that possibly After Love has a lot of goodwill behind it and I wonder if that will sneak the win in Outstanding British Film.
2: I think that's an interesting point. point. My thoughts there are that because there are a number of different sort of smaller British independent films that I'm hearing a lot of support for. So you've got, for example, After Love, Ali and Ava, but also Boiling Point and and then passing as well. I kind of wonder whether that slightly splits that vote in different directions and that there isn't perhaps a film that everybody is getting behind. Although if there is one, I guess it would be After Love. I still think though this has got to be Belfast to lose. I mean it, it is such a, a strong it's showing so strongly across the nominations that to me it would seem pretty extraordinary for it, for it not to win.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. And then of course, you know, that does potentially indicate a, a more of a struggle in the best film category for Belfast to take that prize as well. Although of course that's perfectly possible, but with, you know, The Power of the Dog still being a, quite a strong contender. And I think there's a lot of love out there for Don't Look Up and Dune as well. I mean, there's a lot of people that people have really responded quite positively to Don't Look Up in a way that maybe we hadn't anticipated when it first dropped on Netflix around Christmas time. Uh, and Dune, of course, is has got a passionate fan base and that that for sure will be a film that is gonna score extremely well in the craft categories, both at BAFTAs and The Oscars. I think we'll see a lot of wins for, for that film across the board. So it's, it's, it's a pretty open race, uh, but yeah, interesting to, to see how things shape up. Finn, anything you wanna add at this point?
1: I thought Boiling Point was kind of sneaking in there a little bit as well. What do you think, Charles? I mean, I, I, th- I think that's got a bit of wings, that that film, or hot air or <laughs> whatever, steam, rising steam from the kitchen. I'm a fan of Boiling Point.
2: I don't know how wide and strong the support is. I mean, it didn't perform at the British Independent Film Awards as strongly, uh, well, certainly not as strongly as After Love, which, you know, virtually swept them. So I kind of wonder, yeah, whether
0: it will go the distance. Well, before we move on to what our own personal picks are going to be, I wonder if we could just quickly talk about the actor categories, we're not going to do our picks in the acting categories. Again, they are quite different between the BAFTA and the Oscars, mainly because of the jury led system that applies to the BAFTA nominating process for these for these categories. Uh, And also at the BAFTAs, there are six nominees in each category, whereas the Oscars are five but it is interesting the kind of divergence isn't it Charles certainly like in for instance in in the leading actress category where Lady Gaga made the cut for BAFTA but despite the fact that she was considered one of the front runners all all season she didn't make the cut for the Oscar nominations and then vice versa Kristen Stewart who everyone's been considering a front runner from the very beginning was left off the BAFTA nomination list list but did make t- to the oscar shortlist so are there any kind of uh interesting other things you want to sort of mention in the acting categories
2: well there are
0: categories where there
2: is sort of a lot more overlap or some sort of overlap in key areas the actress category yeah is a bit of a head scratcher where you've got six women nominated at the bafta and five at the oscar and they're all completely different and of course you know there are some what i would say slightly more populist choices in the mix and i think that is a result of the fact that this year the um top two choices in each of these categories from the long listing round were automatically nominated and I think we can assume that Lady Gaga was one of those and probably Leo DiCaprio in Best Actor but actor I yeah I mean I think sort of for the Oscar it feels like it's Will Smith to lose I think he's very strongly fancied I had assumed his strongest contender was Benedict Cumberbatch but I didn't see I know it's a small sample but our awards whisperers were not really pulling in that direction. I think Stephen Graham actually has a real shot. I know that Matt, you just mentioned Boiling Point. This could be an area where Stephen Graham, he's such a admired actor in the UK for his television work and his film work. I think that he's probably someone that if you have worked with him ever, you're probably rooting for him and pulling for him. And to do a, a film, you know, that's a one shot take, it's a pretty, uh, that's, you know, really significantly resting on his shoulders. I think there is a lot of um, support there, but because deal Akhtar is also nominated for Alien Ava, I think that does also potentially split that vote where the same kind of people that would perhaps look at a British indie film, you know, th- those people, their votes may, may be divided.
3: I would say it's similar in best actress in safaris so i think joanna scanlon could be where bafta voters show their love for after love and i'd say i mean what do other people think about the favorite in leading actress i mean i i sort of i personally think it looks like it's joanna's to lose
0: if I look at that leading actress BAFTA category, it feels that Joanna Scanlon for sure has the momentum. I mean, she won the BIFA. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of strong feeling and, and sort of support for that film. It's unlikely he'll win best director for After Love. It's unlikely he'll take the outstanding British film. So this is this is obviously the category where they can express their admiration for the film. And of course her performance was also fantastic. Plus the other contenders I don't really feel are as strong as, for instance, if some of the Oscar-nominated actresses has made that category. So, we, you know, we don't have Olivia Coleman for The Lost Daughter in this field. We don't have Penelope Cruz for Parallel Mothers. So really, to me, it feels a pretty strong case for Joanna to win this award.
2: I have to say that I agree. And I think that Joanna was probably one of the two people that were automatically nominated. I don't know that. I haven't spoken to those jurors. And of course, it's all a very secret process. So I do think that when you fill out your ballot, if you are a fan of After Love, that actress is going to be top of your list for you to make your mark. The other category where I think this film has a real chance, of course, is Outstanding British Debut. But that is all determined by a jury. So the voters do not get to vote in that category. So again, I think that's another reason why Joanna Scanlon has got a really strong chance here.
1: As the International Women's Day kind of correspondent here, the voice of the women, can I just sort of point out the Will Smith And and I'm just not, not making any opinion on it as a critic, of course I enjoyed the film, but I wonder really Charles what you're saying about him being a favorite and whatever, whether many women want to vote in a male performance in a film that is about the sporting excellence and genius of two women, over and out.
0: I don't have a strong opinion on that. However, I would say, I don't think Will's quite as strong a front runner as maybe you think, Charles. I think with the BAFTAs, I do think Benedict is, you know, he has home field advantage, doesn't he, as a mm-hmm. British actor. So I think, although our awards Whisperers didn't really express their votes in that way, I think him and Stephen Graham both have a real real shot in that category. And then if I look at the the Oscar nominations, I mean Will, Will and Benedict, you know, they probably are the two front runners. However, I also think there's a lot of love for Andrew Garfield for Tick, Tick Boom. I could easily see him pulling off a big upset there. I don't think Denzel or Javier Bardem for being the Ricardos are, are are strong contenders, but I think between those three there could be a sort of different win. However, I would say Will is for sure the leading contender in the Oscars.
3: Charles, can you remind me, with the acting categories, this is the first time the whole of the BAFTA membership get to vote, isn't it, in these that's acting That's absolutely
2: roles. correct. So the, the acting chapter got to uh, have a say in the first round, and you know, their top two choices were automatically nominated. Then a, a nominating jury chose the nominees, and now for the first time, everybody gets to, to weigh in. And that's true of all of the categories. And I think you know we, we should be mindful of that because... The overall majority of the voters may have, diff- you know, tastes may be being expressed very differently to the specialist chapters that were involved, or the juries that were involved in creating these nominations.
0: Just quickly looking at the supporting categories, for me, it feels in the supporting actor category, Cody Smith-McPhee is, is the one to beat uh, in both BAFTA and the Oscars category, with pro- possibly Troy Kotzer from CODA a strong second favourite in that field. What do you think, Charles? I agree that Cody
2: is the front runner. Certainly, has been the front runner. I think Troy Kotzer is making a very bold push in that category, and I'm hearing an awful lot of support for him. I think the power of the dog is going to get votes in other categories. So people who are looking to to spread their love a bit may, you know, rally behind Troy. Jesse Plemons, I'm hearing a lot of support for. And I, I do think that Jesse may split that vote with Cody, giving Troy a clear path through the middle.
0: And if we look at supporting actress, so Ariana DeBose for West Side Story has long been considered one of the key front runners. But Angenou Ellis for King Richard, I mean, what do we think? She feels like she's, she's kind of also gaining her own momentum. I thought her performance was fantastic in the film. What did, what did you all think?
3: I think in supporting at the BAFTA, I can see Ruth Neger making an impact.
0: I think this
2: one for the BAFTA is so open because, Mm. you know, Katrina Balf is fantastic in Belfast. And I think of, you know, she's nominated, obviously Kieran Hines is nominated. I think people are going to vote for one performance. It might be hers. I think Jessie Buckley, there's a lot of love for her uh, personally as a performer, and I think people like her in The Lost Daughter. And then New, I think, you know, has carrying a, lo- a lot of support. And I agree with you about Ruth Negger. And then I think for the Oscar, it is Ariane DuBose is, is, is the, the favourite and she will pick up a lot of votes at the Baftas. So I, I'm sorry to Anne out, I really think that uh, for her, the nomination was the win, but it looks to me like a real five-way contest there for the Best Sporting Actress BAFTA.
3: Yes, it's fascinating. It's an exciting one to look
0: out for on the night. Well, shall we move on to picking our winners or declaring our winners? Who we're planning to vote for in uh, four key categories? I should just note here that this podcast is dropping on the day that BAFTA voting closes on March 8th, although I don't think we'll be changing anyone's minds at this late stage. Why don't we go in order like we're actually at the BAFTAs and work our way backwards up to best film? We're only gonna do these four key categories. Let's start with film not in the English language, in which we have drive my car, the hand of God, Parallel Mothers, Petit Maman, and The Worst Person in the World. So, Finn, let's start with you. What's your What's your winner in this category?
1: Well, I'm going to go with Parallel Mothers, which I sort of feel has been a film that's done incredibly well at the box office, but because the Spanish Academy didn't put it forward, it somehow confused people as to how good it is or isn't. But it, my goodness, it's a really strong feel. But yeah, Parallel Mothers.
0: Louise?
3: Yeah, it's such a great field. It's my favorite category and I would happily vote for any of them. And I haven't voted yet and I'm still not decided because I really, really, really loved Parallel Mothers too. And I think it, it really resonated. And it's the film I've thought about the most since I've watched it. It's the film I can conjure up easiest in my mind. But I also love Petit Memoir and I would love Celine Siama to win. So it's between those two for me.
0: Charles.
2: So this is like my pick rather than who I think will win because I, I was going to say who I thought might win is actually Pedro Almodovar for Parallel Mothers because although that film was not, you know, in the mix for Oscar, his films have won this category three times before and the, this film is, of the five films, it's the one that's clearly resonated at the box office. So I think there's a lot of support for it. But if we're declaring our personal favourites, I, in a, you know, in a very tough race, I think I would go the worst person in the world. The Urken Trio film, which I think is fantastic. I think Renata Rainsfield, if I'm saying her name correctly, is an amazing performance. And yeah, for me, it just has the edge.
0: Well, I can tell you, I have voted for The Hand of God. It's the film I saw early on, the one that I loved very early on, and it's just stuck with me all the way through. It was the film we chose as our early front runner in this race, but it seems to have faded along the way, but I'm sticking with it. And it's interesting that none of us picked Drive My Car, of course, which has also landed in other categories as well, both here and at the Oscars, you know, the Ryosuke Hamaguchi film, and is an amazing piece of work. But we've all all gone with other films in this category.
2: I was going to say Drive My Car, you know, it feels like it should be the favourite based on the fact that it's nominated for director at both the Oscars and the Baftas, and it's got screenplay nominations, and it's got a Best Picture Oscar nomination, but I'm still not sure that it is the favourite um, because it is a film that you know is 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 not going to be beloved by all the many 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 thousands of voters. So we'll see.
0: Well, let's look at director next. You mentioned Ryosuke Hamaguchi as one of the nominees in this category. Alim Khan for After Love, Audrey Dewan for Happening, Paul Thomas Anderson for Licorice Pizza, Julia now for Titane, and Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog. So Charles, let's start with you. Who's your Who's your pick in this category?
2: I really, really love the film Happening by Audrey Dewan. I think it's a fantastic film. I do wonder whether she has a realistic chance of winning the category. And I know we shouldn't think like that, but I do wonder whether, whether she's got enough momentum behind her to win. And certainly Jane Campion, for me, it is an, an extraordinary achievement in terms of the overall direction of that film, You know, through every category, the control that she has, the way she directs her story. So I think probably I'm going to go Jane.
1: Yeah, I I want to go Jane because I love Jane Campion and I want Jane Campion to win everything that she possibly can win. So, you know, that would be probably, uh, I do have to say though that The Power of the Dog is not my favourite film of hers, you know. But I'm going to have to be honest and say that I, I probably, I haven't voted yet, but I probably am going to go to Paul Thomas Anderson because I, I really thought that was a magnificently directed film. Louise? I am... Um always going to vote for a woman director in this
3: category, given the opportunity, unless the film is truly awful. But I I mean, I haven't voted yet. But I think that I will go for Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog.
0: Well, I can reveal, I have voted for Jane Campion for The Power of the Dog. And I would just add that I'm so happy to see Audrey Dewan and Julia Ducker now in this category. I think I loved the film Happening Like You, Charles. Titane, I liked it less, but I think, you know, she's a, an amazing voice and I, I can't wait to see what else she does. However, for me, I think the nominations are great, but I think there's a disconnect to actually voting for them because they are clearly jury selections and there's no, there's no other presence across the rest of the BAFTA. So I don't know if it really reflects for me what the BAFTA membership is really feeling. So, I, so And, you know, Jane Campion, of course, is an amazing filmmaker and I love The Power of the Dog, so I'm, I'm very happy to see and I hope she does win. Let's move on to Outstanding British Film. So in this category, there are 10 nominees. We have After Love, Ali and Ava, Belfast, Boiling Point, Serrano. Everybody's talking about Jamie, House of Gucci, Last Night in Soho, No Time to Die, and Passing. We have talked quite a bit about this category already, but just who is everyone going for as their winners? Finn, shall we start with you?
1: Look, I still don't know, Matt, to be honest with you, I haven't voted yet. I still don't know. I'm conflicted. I, I my heart would probably go with passing if I just to say what I thought was just absolutely outstanding. And it was it's not set in Britain, of course, and it's not you know, it's not a British film. But I really did think it was it was outstanding. And I love the Brio of the one shot boiling point. And I really like uh, Belfast, too. Um, the, the sort of, yeah, the heightened child's eye, sort of semi-fantastical, you know, kind of look at that conflict. Um, yes. I don't know, though. Yeah, probably passing. Yes.
0: Louise?
3: Well, for me, it's House of Gucci. No, just kidding. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> for me, I have to vote for an independently produced British film. I have to go with the spirit of this category. And so it'll be for me either after love or Ali and Ava, which I loved as well.
2: I'm a bit like Finn in that I'm very conflicted and I don't want to let sort of personal factors kind of sway. I've I've actually met Philip Barantino the director of Boarding Point, quite a lot over the course of this award season and really enjoyed interviewing him and think that, he, you know, he's had an amazing journey from being an actor whose you know career wasn't exactly amazingly flourishing and reinventing himself as a director and what he has really done outside of the film establishment with you know no support from the main stakeholders and really proved himself and I've really got to applaud him for that but I do think that Belfast is a phenomenal movie and if I don't vote for it in best film which I won't be I do think this might be I know it sounds like the sort of safe obvious choice but I I do think it's a great achievement I think it's a film I didn't expect from this filmmaker. So I probably will be ultimately pulled in that direction.
0: I wanted to go with an independent British film. As you say, Louise, this is the category to support, you know, the independent British film industry. So I went for After Love. I mean, I could have chosen, I could have also gone with Belfast. I could have gone with Passing. You know, I did waver between my choices, but After Love just is, of this bunch, is the film that has stayed with me the most. So that was my choice. All right, we're on to best film now. Okay, so I'll start with this one. because is, everyone, I'm making everyone else go first. So I will tell you that I voted for Dune, uh, and the- I was
1: just about to say uh- <laughs> Dune for me. No way.
0: I got there first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I voted for Dune partly because of my <laughs> inner teenage geek who absolutely loved this book when I was a teenager and couldn't get enough of it, loved the whole series, but also thought what Denis Villeneuve did in terms of adapting it was just extraordinary. And I cannot wait to see the second film. And I just had too many reservations, as much as I liked them, I had too many reservations about Belfast and The Power of the Dog to vote for them. And I really liked Licorice Pizza and Don't Look Up. But yeah, ultimately, Dune Dune got my vote in this category. So, Finn, well, I think we know what you're voting for.
1: Oh, well, yes, I mean, it's, it's a category that I'm very undecided about, and I'm absolutely with you. Like, the part of me that's the sci-fi kind of nerdy geek, and I love this space opera, that someone told me off for calling it space opera. Apparently, it's not quite within those um, strictures. It's not space opera. a bit worried about space fans. You know, you never, can never quite get it right when you do the reviews. But, um I just love the fact it takes itself so seriously. Like, you know, everybody believes they're on this planet for sure, you know. Uh, it takes itself so seriously. It's kind of epic grandeur, sci-fi, old style, you know. So I thought in my head, I was probably actually going to vote for it. And I, and I do love licorice pizza, and I do like Belfast a lot. And I also like The Power of the Dog, but I don't know. When, it come, when I look at this, it, it's Dune for me.
0: Charles, what's coming to you next? Dune, no. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? If if Deneville Nerve had been
2: nominated for director, I think that would have been a very interesting proposition for me. And I think that had, frankly, had it been not a jury, I think Deneville Nerve probably would have been nominated for director at at the BAFTAs. But for me, best film, I think it is between Licorice Pizza and The Power of the Dog. And I know that it feels like I'm just... We've already said a lot a lot about the power of the dog, but I've seen that film twice on the big screen. And the first time I saw it, I was truly astonished by it. I, it was, went in a direction I was not expecting. So I think in terms of the source, the story, the source material, the, the adaptation of that material, the casting, the filmmaking as an overall package for best film, it really does feel that it
0: earns my vote. And Louise.
3: I haven't watched June yet (laughs) as of the recording of this podcast and it's one for this weekend for me. So I haven't made up my mind. I like the films in this category, but I don't love them. I mean, I love Paul Thomas Anderson, but it's not my favourite film of his. I will always love Magnolia. I think Don't Look Up is too gloomy and too long. I liked Belfast. I, am you know, he made it, Kenneth Branagh made it during the pandemic when people were only just getting back to work. It was a really hard shoot. I mean, it's not perfect, but it looks so beautiful on the big screen. And the power of the dog is Jane Campion and it's a great film and I like it a lot, but I don't love it. So I am undecided at this stage. If I had to vote now, it would be Belfast, but I haven't watched June, so I need to watch June quickly. Though it's not a quick watch.
0: So Finn, Louise, and Charles, thank you very much for sharing your picks. We'll see how predictive we are when the BAFTA winners are revealed on March 13th at the Royal Albert Hall. And just to highlight some other key dates as we thunder into the home stretch of award season, the DGA Awards ceremony will take place on March 12th, and Oscars' final voting window opens on March 17th before the ceremony takes place on the 27th. On Monday, March 28th, next year's award season kicks off officially. Kidding. Let's not think about next year's award season just yet. But Finn, in honor of it being International Women's Day, we are now gonna hand over to you for your interview with Nina Menkes. We'll look forward to listening to that and Louise and Charles, we'll see you later.
1: Thank you, Matt. I'm very lucky to be here with Nina Menkes, who is a renowned independent American feminist filmmaker, or we'll find out from her later whether that's how she describes herself. She's currently in the process of having a bicoastal retrospective of her films in New York and Los Angeles, including such titles as Magdalena Varaga, The Great Sadness of Zohara and Dissolution. She's also the director of a documentary called Brainwashed, Sex, Camera, Power, which premiered at the Sundance Film Festival in January, went on to Berlin, and will also be in Copenhagen Docs later this month. The film is an extension of her academic lecture, Sex and Power, the Visual Language of Oppression. Nina, welcome to the Screen Podcast, and thank you very much for coming on. This is actually coming out on International Women's Day, so can I start by asking you what does International Women's Day mean to you, if it means anything?
4: Well, it's good that we have it, you know, it should be like every day is International Women's Day or how about every other day is International Women's Day, right? Aren't women like 51% of the world? So women are the largest oppressed group on planet Earth. But um, I once heard somebody say, you know, we're the only oppressed group that has to run to a mirror to find out who we are. The best way of keeping women down is having them so obsessed with how we look and identifying our entire value through that so it's it's great that we have one international women's day but you know it's a big problem and it's not uh, one day but it's uh, every day
1: Looking at your work, which I've been doing quite a lot recently, I've been quite drawn to it since I watched Brainwash during Sundance, and you used clips from your work in the film. You started making films back in 1983, and even then the shots you used and the way you expressed yourself visually were very different to the norm. It's very, very individual work, Nina, and you've been described as a feminist filmmaker, but is that how you view yourself?
4: Well, I mean, I I have been referred to as a feminist filmmaker um, because the issue of women having their own perspective that doesn't just reproduce the general, you know, male heteronormative way of seeing the world. But I actually consider myself just a film director. You know, why do you have to say feminist? You don't say, you know, you don't say about a male director like Quentin Tarantino that he's a male-centered director. So there's this general way of looking. And then if you look in any other way, you have to have a label. But that's exactly what's so painful about it i mean if the world is 51 percent female do we need a label to say i'm just making films about the world as i see it i'm making films about my life i'm making films about my experience and other people's experience so there's something kind of odd i mean I, i abigail disney actually just posted on um I think it was on Instagram, she had seen there was a a, like a poster in New York City that she had just walked by and it quoted Gloria Steinem saying, the definition of feminist is someone who believes that women and men have equal rights. I doubt there's anyone who would dare to say they're not a feminist. So why do I have to be labeled like that? That particular label points to the problem. You know, it points to the problem that That most people go along with a certain way of seeing the world and if you are outside that way of seeing the world which is a male heterosexist way of seeing the world then you suddenly oh my god you know it's different you know yes it is it is different
1: you've said how difficult it has been to get funding for your films throughout your career and that potential financiers have described your work as too experimental even though an experimental male filmmakers, take for example, David Lynch, has always been celebrated or certainly found it easier to get financing. Has anything changed for you in that regard in recent years?
4: Of course, I was oppressed as a, as a woman. We all know the statistics. Women in the film industry have been completely shafted, period, full stop. Doesn't matter if you're experimental or narrative or whatever. Shafted, no chances. Until very, very recently, there's, there's been a slight shift and even that slight shift tends to prioritize women directors who are willing to perpetuate a certain way of presenting um, their women characters in film, and, and Teton is a good example of that.
1: We had been talking about Titan, which is the winner of the Palme d'Or last year. And of course there are some shots in there, which you and I both agree were a bit eye raising. And in fact, you included one of them in the documentary Brainwashed, and that's a sort of um,
4: sexual dance with the car, really. Can you talk a bit about the decision to include that scene? Sure. Well, the first thing I want to say is to echo Bell Hooks, who said patriarchy has no gender, women directors have indeed reproduced much of the same uh, heterosexist kind of uh, cinematic language as male directors. The fact that there's been less women doing it might have more to do with the fact that there's just less women in general making films, but we see women reproduce this language. You know, you see it um, in Brainwashed, I, I give, quite a number of examples of that, including, you know, Sophia Coppola and including Teton. So let's think about Teton for a minute. It's a film that a lot of people are excited about, and I'm not here to critique Teton as a film, whether it's good or not. I'm just pointing out that the director indeed reproduced the same kind of sexually objectifying film language that you see, you know, from the beginning of time and up to the present and the the question is if she's trying to make a comment people say well she's making a comment you know maybe she is and maybe she isn't but my point is that we have not (laughs) achieved the kind of liberation from this kind of language to a point where you can use the same old thing to make a point and as Julie Dash says in Brainwashed, quoting Audre Lorde, you know, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. And, and she says, you know, that phrase by Audre Lorde can be applied to the male gaze way of filming. So if you're just reproducing it and then saying, well, it's a comment, I'm gonna say, hmm, I wonder if that comment is really working or not. I think that it's relevant that, you know, that particular shot was put into the trailer and it was reproduced a lot, probably more than any other shot in the film. That shot became the emblem of the film. And you, you kind of wonder why. Because, I mean, that's one of the things I, I brought up in Brainwashed, which is that even if there's an ostensible intention, because people sometimes say, well, does it matter about the intention? You know, if you have the shot of a, woman's behind because you're sexually objectifying her, you know, from the point of view of a male heterosexual character, or is it, if it's sarcastic or a comment, does that change? So my position on that is that, of course, the intent is important and it has an impact, but what I'm talking about is the direct to your gut impact of seeing these shots. Is that the best way to make a comment on these things? To reproduce them and give it to us again? Yeah. You know, so whether it's the shot in Titan, whether it's the fact that the 25 year old woman in Titan spends half her time naked, whether it's the pan of Bridget Bardot's body from back in 1963, you know, we're inundated with this kind of imagery and the question becomes like if your intent is to critique it maybe there's a better way the other sort of overt example which we kind of use as a <laughs> a big example in brainwashed is the you know the scene with anna de armas in blade runner 2049 where she's this naked holograph and she bends over and she talks in this throaty voice and she's not really you know we say you know taking the idea of female objectification to new and exciting heights, she's not even a human. Now that was also supposedly a comment on female objectification, you know, but these comments, to my view, completely backfire and just end up reinforcing the idea of women as sex objects you know, these many, many recent examples that we include in the film, including women directors. And that's very important to point out that women participate in our own oppression, unfortunately, and uh, regularly so. In Brainwashed, your
1: main position, and it's a position that I completely agree with, is that shot design is gendered, that men and women are shot differently. When did that realization first come to you, do you think?
4: As you noted, I started making films when I got to the UCLA Film School in the 80s and I sort of had for whatever reason, I, I, I can't really explain it, but I had an intuitive connection through photography to my own experience, so when I would pick up a camera, I had no desire or no There was no reason that I would do, for example, you know, a pan down a a naked woman's body or a close-up on her crotch or, or anything like that. I just, like, I had no interest in that. So I was making, in fact, a film, like we mentioned before, Magdalena Viraga. I was making a film about a prostitute and I wanted to focus entirely on her face during all the sex scenes. And that was something I did not, have like a theoretical background in doing that I work very intuitively so I just I kind of knew intuitively felt that I was doing something like really against the grain but I didn't have a theoretical background for it I just was very personally sensitive I did photography as a teenager so I was always like very much feel things through the lens that's I I shoot all my own films so I experience kind of if I can say this I experience sort of truth through the lens and I can feel when my shot is reflecting something true or not so that process that intuitive process after like we were talking before i sort of was shocked because i i hope this doesn't sound arrogant but i knew my films were great i really knew they were great and i knew it's like i was put on earth to make movies but no one would really give me any money outside of small grants and i had to sort of you know basically work for free and ask friends to work on my films and I had to find a way to make money. And I started teaching as, as a way to survive. And through the course of teaching, you know, I used to I just started, you know, I would say, Well, did you see such and such a film? I hated it, you know. And then people would be like, Well, why? You know, you can't just say, Oh, I hated it. You have to explain. So through the course of teaching, I was sort of forced to be more specific. And through this process of being more specific. Um, and I, then I was also later introduced to film theory and the work of Laura Mulvey and other important theorists. I realized that the best way for me to explain what I was talking about was to actually get shots from certain films and say, hey, look at this and look at this and look at this. So that was a, it was a slow process whereby I became able to articulate some of the things that I had naturally felt intuitively because I was a teacher, I had to explain. I couldn't just like, yes, I love this film, I hate this film, that, that, was, you know, that doesn't fly if you're a teacher, you have to be a little more specific. So that was a, an interesting process and I would always usually, I don't know, maybe once a semester I would give my little talk and say, look here, look here, look here. And I never actually thought this was something that would interest people outside of a film school context until much later
1: presumably with the realization of the toxic sexual politics of Hollywood, if that's the way to describe it, there has been more interest in what you've been saying. Is that what led you to make Brainwashed?
4: Absolutely. Yeah, it was, it was really, um, there were two major things that I think contributed to the fact that this film got made. The first was the Maria Geis who instigated the ACLU investigation into the severe, severe sex discrimination in the film industry in Hollywood and the ACLU went to the federal government the federal government started an investigation and that shook things up in Hollywood. They got worried that they were gonna be hit with major fines for illegal sex discrimination. And that was like 2014, 2015 and then came the Me Too movement in 2017 with the Harvey Weinstein article hitting the New York Times in October, 2017. That was the point where I wrote a little essay for Filmmaker Magazine. And I tied in the visual language of cinema with employment discrimination and an environment of sexual abuse that we were all experiencing a short little essay, which I thought, you know, a hundred people might read. And this essay in the wake of the Me Too movement went viral. It was their most read article of the year. So suddenly it was like, oh, suddenly the stuff that I've been talking about for thousands of years, suddenly the world is interested. And I got invited here and there to give my talk all around the world. And then that led to the idea to make it into a feature film which ended up to be brainwashed
1: you take the viewer through why shop design is gendered and how it is gendered. And you come to the conclusion really that through all these techniques, well, you, you call it the bedrock language of rape culture. And you make a very persuasive case for that. Did you get much pushback on that? Because that's quite a provocative thing to say.
4: Well, I feel like there have been some nasty (laughs) reactions, but there's also been a huge amount of gratitude. I felt, you know, one of the things that has been amazing is the amount of gratitude that I've been getting, like just on social media from people I don't know saying, thank you, thank you, thank you for making this film. I've I've always felt this stuff that I didn't have a language for it. This film is important. And and so I think that there's a lot of appreciation is what I'm hearing from most people. I think that we are so conditioned to this way of seeing and this way of looking that my films, which are now showing this month in New York and LA, and I hope people come out to see them. My films very much do not participate in that gendered language and they show a completely different perspective and that is one of the reasons that my films are so unusual. They're presenting a completely different way of seeing the world, and, a, and they're presenting an experience which a lot of people actually can relate to, but it's almost like it's in a foreign language. I'm going to ask you one final question here, Nina,
1: which is you talked earlier about there being a little chink, a sliver of female filmmakers coming through at last. Do you personally see light at the end of the tunnel? you're very forthright and brainwashed. So can you give us your honest, full truth opinion here?
4: Remains to be seen. I think that we have made some progress, but I think it's also like three steps forward, two steps back. I don't think we are anywhere near equality. Uh, We're far away from it in the film industry. And even more than that, just this, this idea of the kind of female characters that you're going to see on screen I think there has been a little shift, but I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, I will say that the fact that Brainwashed was invited to the top film festivals of the world is a great sign. The fact that I'm having a bi-coastal retrospective (laughs) is a good sign, um, if I'm just talking selfishly about myself. In terms of the statistics, we just had the Annenberg study come out. I believe it's just like two weeks ago. And one of their statistics was the major distributors. I can't remember who all was on that list, but it was a a long list of the big distributors. And out of 1,582 films that were distributed by the big guys, only 82 of those films were made by women. So, like Eliza Hittman says in Brainwashed, we're not just talking about gendered shot design. We're not just talking about the male gaze. We're talking about systems of distribution. You know, if you do break through and you make something that's different, is your film going to get out into the world? That's an important question.
1: Well, thank you, Nina. I think we all should keep pushing and we should all see brainwashed as well, as you won't look at things in film the same way if you do. Congratulations on your retrospective and good luck with the global rollout of brainwash, Nina.
4: Thank you.
0: That brings us to the end of this episode of The Screen Podcast. Thank you to my colleagues Finn, Louise and Charles and to our guest for today's podcast, Nina Menkes. And thank you very much for listening. The Screen Podcast is available wherever you listen and don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to let us know how you're enjoying the podcast. Also, please do keep up with the latest news from the international screen industries at screendaily.com and our social media outposts, including at Screendaily on Twitter. This episode was produced by Danielle Kosh. Tune in next time, we'll see you then.